Welcome to Honey and Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Hello, people. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Ronan. My mother is the host of the podcast. Her name is Robin Robertson, and this is the Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids podcast. And yeah, I think my mom has something to say. Thanks, Ronan. So welcome to the podcast. And actually, first, I'd like to give a shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for being part of the Patreon community. I really want to thank you for your support, engagement, and encouragement. It means a lot, and it really helps our podcast to continue and to grow. But today, I'd like to send a special thank you to a certain patron. The patron is Deneen Foss. Deneen was my very first patron, and I'd like to thank you, Deneen, for your ongoing support and encouragement. And I actually, to give a little bit of background, I have the pleasure of personally knowing Deneen. She is an unschooling mom, and we first met a few years ago at the Inspired Calgary Homeschooling Conference. So far, it seems to be our yearly meetup as I live very far north and she lives very far south. So once a year, we get a chance to reconnect and see each other again. Hopefully we can do it more often. But Deneen, thank you very much for your support. And if you're listening and you'd like to offer support to the show and join in the Patreon community, to do that, all you have to do is just head to the link in the show notes or go to www.patreon.com slash Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. And when you do, you'll be part of the community and receive special content, we question and answers, and uh, special bonus offers. But if Patreon is not really your fit, but you'd still like to help and support the show, you can do so by leaving a review on iTunes. And when you do leave a review, it helps the show because what it does is whatever algorithms they have for the month or year, it helps our show to be seen by a greater amount of podcast listeners by the reviews that we get. Okay, Mom, thank you very much. And in this episode, my mom is interviewing Dr. Monica Burns. And mom, what do you have to say about this podcast? Yeah, it's really informative. Monica, Dr. Burns is a former teacher. She now is a business owner and educational tech consultant. And we spoke about the changing dynamics of technology and learning, how it may impact schools and the school environment. And she also shared some fantastic tech tools for our kids that can be used in their learning world. Anything from virtual reality to other programs and software, many of them are free as well. Most I had never heard before, so it's actually some great information. And these resources I have shared in the show notes for listeners as well. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Honey Homeschool and Kids and maybe our personal page on <laughs> Unschooling Robin on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm homeschooling kids. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. Goodbye. So today I have Dr. Monica Burns joining me. Thank you very much, Monica, for joining me today on the show. Excited to be here with you. Dr. Monica Burns is a curriculum and ed tech consultant. Apple Distinguished Educator and Founder of ClassTechTips.com. 
Monica was part of her school's leadership team and was a vocal advocate for bringing one-to-one technology into her classroom. Along with being an ed tech and curriculum consultant, Monica is also an author and a former New York City public school teacher. She currently visits schools across the country to support pre-K to 20 teachers to make technology integration meaningful and sustainable. Monica's website, classtechtips.com, helps educators place tasks before apps by promoting deeper learning with technology. You're a graduate of the University of Delaware and Hunter College, and you completed a doctorate in global education leadership at Lamar University in 2016. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining me. So I, I know it's a little bit different as well because... So many times I have uh, parents that come on or other ones that homeschool, but you were a classroom teacher before uh, you started your company that you have now. Can I ask you what, and you're no longer in the classroom, is that correct? That's correct. So I taught in elementary school for a number of years. And then as I was working more in the education technology space, I decided to try out independent consulting and I've been hosting professional development and writing around education technology for the past few years now. Okay. Okay. So what was the big change for you? Why did you decide to pursue that instead of uh, your work in the classroom? So I loved being a classroom teacher and working with students all day, every day. And I was very lucky to work in a school with colleagues who are very supportive and just wonderful environment in general. But I kind of had a seven-year itch of, you know, am I going to change schools? Do I want a new environment Uh, to work as a classroom educator? And at that time, I had a few opportunities coming my way that I knew I could scale if I wanted to around writing and curriculum development and the blogging that I was doing at that time, as well as more of the professional development. So working with teachers at regional events held by, you know, variety of organizations and then also time in classrooms. So that's a big part now of my work as I get to demo in classrooms and show off different strategies. And I love having both sides of that happening now as part of my kind of full-time gig. So what was it that brought you to education in the beginning? I come from a family. My mother is a teacher and lots of folks around me growing up were in education. And I really felt passionate about, you know, the idea of preparing students or children, right, for a future in a world where they needed to ask questions, right, understand lots of different things and think critically. And as I was making decisions on where I wanted to go, you know, as a uh, as a student myself and what I was passionate about, you know, this space especially elementary education, was where I was passionate about and my undergraduate degree is in elementary education. And so that's what got my foot in the door into the space. And my first role within education was as a classroom teacher in New York City. And how was like New York City, which part of New York City? In the city So city? I taught, yep. So I am from New York originally, um, but I taught in South Harlem, right above Central Park uh, for six and, and a half years. years. Okay. Okay. So you've been out of the role of the classroom for how long now? 
It's I'm going into or just finishing up my fifth year as an independent consultant. So now, you know, in addition to working with schools in a similar Title I urban environment, I also have had the chance to work with schools in rural and suburban environments and not just the public school education that I've experienced with as a classroom teacher, but also in parochials and independent schools. So, I mean, one of the things I always thinking about is I think for myself, I'm 42. And when I think of when I was a a student in school, in elementary school in particular, it's very different technology-wise to how it was when I went to school. My, My kids love the story that I tell them of being in grade one. And it was a special afternoon. Our My teacher said that she had a special treat for us. And she rolled in this big thing. And she was like, class, this is a computer. <laughs> and it was oohs and ahs. And we were allowed to each type, you know, each one of us got to come up and type something. Or I think the computer asked a question and we could type the answer. And that was, you know, my big first introduction to technology in the classroom. (laughs) And it was Mm -hmm. at one time and it was still obviously very memorable to me. And my kids think it's hilarious, obviously, because their world is so different now. So for you, did you see any drastic changes from when you first went into the classroom to now? Or has it just been not as much? Well, as a student, you know, one of my earliest memories is going into a computer lab with a much older Mac computers than the one I'm looking at as I'm talking to you today, where we we were practicing our typing. I remember very clearly that there were, you know, washcloths that were glued to the top of the typeboard, the keyboard, um, so that it would cover our fingers as we typed. Yeah, as if we were in like secretarial schools, we couldn't see the keys and we just had to have that finger memory (laughs) of where to type. So as a student, you know, a young elementary student, I remember that being something where I laugh about it now when I'm typing very fast and someone kind of calls me out on it. I say, well, I had this very strange experience as an elementary school student (laughs) where we were always just learning how to type the whole time. Um, And when I went into the classroom as a teacher, you know, I was in a classroom with an overhead projector and transparent and things that were very mm-hmm. familiar to me as a student myself. But within, you know, under a decade, being able to transition to have an interactive whiteboard in the space to go one-to-one with tablets, uh, iPads being um, that device of choice, to seeing how our building, you know, started having a stronger wireless network. So we were able to stay connected throughout the school day during different parts of the day. You know, of course, kids aren't, you know, when I was in the classroom, for sure, teaching, and when I'm in other classrooms, you know, kids aren't on devices all day long by any means, right? But knowing that there was the opportunity to thread into our traditional learning experiences, something that, you know, leverage the special features of digital tools uh, was really a wonderful experience to see that transition, not just from my role as a student into a teacher, but even within my teaching career. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that it has been an asset so far or has it been a detriment in other ways? There's plenty of places where 
digital tools are just there and they're not doing much more than that typing or word processing that I think mm-hmm. back to, you know, when we were in school. But in many cases, right, these tools really are being used to give kids more ways to access information. So as consumers, as well as as creators so that they can share what they've learned. Maybe it's a culminating project at the end of a unit of study, or maybe it's more of an everyday experience where they are using an audio or video response to share what they learned that day, as opposed to a traditional exit slip or tell me what you learned on a post-it note, giving kids more opportunities and, and ways to share their learning. Yeah, it gives a, a broader or wider scope on things as well. I, I think it's instead of just pen and paper, there are so many tools now that creates diversity in your how you express things as well too, how you can show what you're learning and what you're doing and how you want to create it as well. It gives so many more options in that way too. Definitely. You know, you have students who are podcasting, who are making movies or creating websites, right? So just as you said, this variety, right, gives a lot of choice for students. You know, I would actually probably before I move on to this next question, because I know this is one I I had asked earlier, and I said I actually had some questions for my patrons as well for you. And I think some of the questions kind of tie in together anyways, from the ones that I had um, asked of you already. But before I ask that, because I want to get into how the change that of technology and how it's moving quite quickly. I think I remember years ago, I read a Peter Diamandis book and he was talking about the rate of change in technology and it's something like every two years it's revamped and changed, um, which is really fast <laughs> to keep up with the changes. But f- first, could you maybe talk about, you know, if you're consulting, if you're working with schools or teachers, classrooms, educators or parents, what is your ideal classroom or environment or education space when you're using technology? What does the idea look like for you? If you could have access to anything, what would it look like? You could draw us a picture. I love tablets and touchscreens and the mobility that they provide. You know, Chromebooks are wonderful. Sometimes, you know, they're brought in because the keyboard helps with testing. And I don't think that's a wonderful reason to uh, choose that type of technology necessarily. So I really do love the mobility that tablets provide, that kids could snap a picture, record video, and move around a space. So when I think about an ideal environment, it would include something like that where kids could create really easily and also consume right off of a device. I'm also really excited about headsets for virtual reality when they are right fit. You know, they're not going to be developmentally appropriate for young children or younger students, but for older students where they might go into a simulation, not for an hour with a headset on, but a couple minutes to see things from a different perspective. I think that can be really powerful as well. So I love the combination of the mobility and the creation that tablets provide, but then also exploring some of the emerging technology like virtual reality. When it's a good fit in different learning environments, I think it can be very powerful. So I'd love to see more access to that, especially when we're thinking about students in middle school and in high school and some of the simulations that can help them prepare for different types of careers. 
Are there very many schools now that use virtual reality in their schools or classrooms or centers? There's absolutely schools that have access, whether it is a Google Expedition style um, rollout or initiative. There's other schools that have Oculus Rifts or use some of the lifelike technology or even, um, you know, there's a tool called ZSpace, which I would kind of put into that was a mixed reality piece. So there's a variety, but the implementation varies, you know, greatly. And it's not just a geography or socioeconomic component. You know, I find that it really comes down to the kind of grassroots support of educators who are bringing things in or, you know, advocating for certain kinds of technologies. And then also school leaders who have their eyes open to all of these things and they're, you know, strategically choosing what's more than just flashy and grabbing everyone's attention, but can be used purposely to connect to some of their uh, goals uh, around curriculum. You know, when I think about using virtual reality in the classroom, because I personally have not seen that yet, I haven't experienced that yet, but I think that's fantastic because it would be such an, an ideal, amazing tool to, for, for learning to, and for the kids to have access to that as well. And I understand what you're saying, bringing it on a grassroots level and innovative and forward-thinking educators as well that are bringing it in as a useful tool and not just because it's a cool fad kind of thing and therefore are using it well and not having it bring it in and you know taking up space in the closet yeah that's just it making sure that there are right, a lot of purpose and strategy uh, behind using this I have a blog post on my site with virtual reality discussion prompts you know that kind of illustrate that concept to say you know if we are going to have this experience what are the conversations going to look like are we talking about our observations are we making inferences are we making connections that help us build empathy for what life is like in a different part of the world and you know yeah that can happen with some of the fancier type of technology around virtual reality for sure. But there's, you know, free resources you can pull up on a Chromebook or a tablet. Google Arts and Culture is one real great example that has free content where you can do these interactive street views and it's mobile responsive. So if you move that smartphone or tablet back and forth, it'll move with you. So it's been really interesting to see the great variety of resources that are out there. So some who just wants to try it out, who's dabbling a little bit, who doesn't have a grant or a huge budget, can make the most of some of the free, you know, kind of lower quality tools, but still really powerful when used hand in hand uh, with specific learning experiences. Okay. These are actually great ones too. All of the resources that you have mentioned and I know you are going to mention, I'm also going to include them in the show notes. So um, yeah, so Google Arts and Culture is definitely one that I put a star beside as well, because I think that's also many, many parents feel that, you know, it's maybe virtual reality is not as accessible as well, that it's, you you know, there's, you have to go to a, a gaming place or to have it in your home is not as easy. Exactly. Yes. And I think you know, there's a lot of folks who want to bring this in, but especially if you are homeschooling or supporting your children, you know, after school hours, right, giving them access to this might feel really prohibitive, right, if you don't have the funds mm-hmm. to pull in these extra pieces. So, you know, even pulling up a website, right, or pulling up an app on a smartphone, right, you can have some high quality conversations that help with reading comprehension, that help with social studies and science topics. So it's really 
really powerful. And, you know, I do a lot of professional development and, and workshops, sometimes for families and parents, and sometimes with students in classrooms, and more often than not with teachers and instructional coaches. And one session that's been really popular the past few years, I have a couple on my calendar in the beginning of 2020 now, it's called Virtual Reality with or without a headset. <laughs> and this idea that you can get mm-hmm. started right away right, with any type of you know device you have easy access to. And that can be a nice way to step into a space where that technology might feel a little intimidating for someone who's not using it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that is also the biggest thing is that it can be intimidating if you don't know it or understand it for sure. You know, speaking of that as well, and moving on around that topic too, the world is changing quickly and the digital age is upon us. You know, many, you know, we we were in the industrial age and, you know, I've been reading lately how so many are saying that we have now left the industrial age. It's now the information age or it's the digital age that it's, it's changed. You know, one of the questions too was, you know, school structures as we know them today were created in the industrial age. And it's an age that has now kind of had its time. How, um, you know, especially when you have schools that are very large structures, <laughs> very large organizations, how are they keeping up with the changes? And are they going to be able to keep up with the fast-paced changes of technology and all the access that we have now at our fingertips right in our home or through Wi-Fi or even other devices like you're, you know, like you're saying, Google Arts and Culture, free apps that are available that where we can experience so many things. I know sometimes with schools, change can be slow because of layers of bureaucracy at times. Um, so how can you know, are schools going to be able to keep up with that and stay relevant? So there's a wide range when it comes to this in terms of how committed school leaders and school, you know, education professionals are when it comes to investigating new things, trying it out, and really vetting what's going to be a good fit. And so, you know, as you mentioned, there's definitely logistical challenges for implementation of new things. I think some of that slow process, you know, can be beneficial because it helps remind everyone that there needs to be some thoughtfulness and some vetting behind bringing in new things into school environments, right? However, that can be a hang up for sure. So, you know, when it comes to large Kind of just b- large amounts of capital that need to be allocated for something like everyone's going to have access to a device or we're opening up a new maker space or we need to rewire our building to increase connectivity. There really does have to be a plan in place and a schedule for a rollout like that, right, to make something like that happen. But on a smaller scale, when we think about supplementing curriculum, finding and bringing in new resources. You know, I find that a lot of instructional coaches who might make suggestions uh, for curriculum support for teachers, right, are out there and looking and listening and seeing what they can bring in that connects to some of the digital tools they may already have in their building. The same thing goes for media specialists, which is a term, right, is now more encompassing of what a librarian's traditional role might have been in the past. So with that multimedia 
component. And some schools and districts even have digital learning specialists that are doing just this, right, with technology at front of mind to say, how can we connect what you can access on a digital tool or what you can do with a digital tool to the curriculum goals that are standards-based right, and connected to some of the things we know we want students to have interactions with. So, you know, there are a lot of resources that folks tap into. I'm very lucky to speak at conferences in different parts, you know, of the country here. Just this December, I was at the Impact um, Education Conference in Minneapolis, and that's an example of a place where, you know, I'm brought in as a featured speaker. They have lots of presentations, and the people who are there are on the hunt (laughs) for this information that they can then use and bring back to the educators that they work with every day so they can make recommendations of what is worth exploring a little bit deeper because they then know what type of logistical constraints there might be, what needs of that student population might look like um, based on what they've learned you know, at an event like that or research that they've done uh, with that you know, specifically in mind. You know, the same thing where I'm brought in sometimes for schools as a you know blended learning coaching role or to host a day of professional development, right? It kind of goes along those same lines, right? What is it? What are the needs here? What is out there and available? And how can we bridge that gap so that you know we are able to make the most of different digital tools and resources? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big feat as well too to keep up and and to be modern as well and um you know and and for everyone to be forward thinking like how do you get everyone on the same page too Mm-hmm. And that can be a challenge when it comes to buy-in, right, and presenting the value add or the benefits of different types of technology. So I often work in schools where there's a range of excitement, right, and a range of implementation already taking place when it comes to bringing in technology. And for those, you know, outside of the education space, I think there tends to be this view that, veteran teachers, folks who have 20, 25 years of experience are very anti-technology. But, you know, honestly, when I go into schools and work with educators, sometimes it's the brand new teachers who are scared and everything is new to them. And they're trying to teach the way that when they were in the classroom that are a little bit more hesitant, right? They're working on classroom management. They're trying to wrap their head around the curriculum. And I find that veteran teachers are often the ones who have the, you know, aha moments. And they say, oh, you know, I've taught unit on ecosystems for the past 15 years. And now that we have, you know, Chromebooks, instead of writing reports, right, students can take all of their research and create public service announcements and share them with this person in our community. So it's awesome to hear those types of connections happen um, with um, teachers who have lots of experience and they see that connection and what's possible. I think that's a good point too, because I think we get those roles reversed, absolutely thinking that the teachers and educators that have been doing it a longer time are slower to adjust to any changes or new, you know, new technology, where sometimes the newer teachers uh, are just kind of so overwhelmed and unsure that it's just kind of one thing at a time and the technology might be one of the last things that's implemented, just, just, you know, trying to get on track and, and learn and, and get everything, on, you know, handled that you have to, to really have the proper understanding to do your job as well. Speaking of teachers too, I know that was also one of the questions that had come up 
Um, and it blended also a little bit with my question, but I'll, I'll, I'll at, ask both of them to the one that I had and the one that was sent from a patron. You know, with technology now, because we are better connected, we have apps and websites and so many tools at our fingertips that are readily available. We have so much information where our globe is connected where we never were before. And when you're learning a subject, when you're learning certain skills, when you're um, mastering certain skills, you have many resources available that many times are free. Khan Academy, YouTube, there's many online courses, online teachers, and resource pages as well. I couldn't even name all of them because there's mm-hmm. pages and pages now. <laughs> how, how do you see this impact in the traditional school structure where before it was the school and the teacher that were the gatekeepers of information, where you would usually go to them for information, but now the information is right there. Yes, there's just so many resources like the ones you mentioned. I love Khan Academy. I have a podcast where I talk about ed tech tips, and that's something I featured earlier um, this school year, talking about things where you know Khan Academy can really come into play and is powerful. And when we think about the access to information, that's a big part of the technology component in schools and outside of schools, right? You could go onto Khan Academy, you could head over to YouTube, or you can pull up a TED-Ed video. You might take an online course, and that is going to give you access to more and more information. And so I think that it changes some of the ways, you know, as educators, we need to think about preparing children to interact in the world and find, you know, information, right? It gives us the opportunity to say, oh, I don't know that, but I can help you find the answer to that and model those skills. It helps with more of that, you know, guide on the side as opposed to the sage on the stage. Uh, Students as they are investigating a topic, so being more facilitators as opposed to, you know, the one and only person who, as you mentioned, right, that gatekeeper of information. And it also provides an opportunity to place an emphasis on, you know, helping students develop the critical thinking and evaluating skills that they're going to need in order to decide on what resource is actually going to give them you know, value so that they can pull up a website and say, is this the right place to go to teach me how to do this new thing? Is this YouTube channel really going to give me the right steps to solve this? How do I know that this content creator right, has the expertise that I want to lean on? So it definitely changes the dynamic and you know, I notice now, you know, especially when I'm talking to educators, right, there's that, I think when YouTube and all that first came on the scene, right, there was this idea of that being someplace where kids were just, you know, going on and playing games and learning about things that were not, you know, really school focused. But more and more when I talk to educators now, whether it's YouTube or other sites like that, you know, there is the educational component that kids are, you know, understanding that they can go out, they can learn something new, they can solve a problem. And that these online spaces, whether it's more academic focus like Khan Academy, or it might be a little bit more hobbyist centric like YouTube, do provide a lot of value for teaching someone how to do something new. Okay. When you were talking about Khan Academy, I know that is what my kids actually use Khan Academy. When they wanted to increase their math skills, Khan was, and we'd used Khan before for other things as well too, for other research. And they just, I don't, he just has that magic formula as well. His short videos, his voice, his sense of humor, and they just really enjoy it. And it's been something, actually, it's been a great tool that they, like, that's what they use is con. 
and they asked me to work alongside them and help at times. But really, that's you know that's been their main their main tool for that style of math. I mean, they do many other applications and things too that you know with cooking and baking and and different things as well. But it's been very useful and. It's nice to see to see that uh, availability of so many things. Yes, and that's you know that's a resource that I really love. As I mentioned, I have a podcast episode. I think it was titled Six Things You Might Not Know About Khan Academy" because right there's that awesome math component. But you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different resources just from that one site. Right, you can find things that are K twelve. It's not just high school. You can find things that are cross curricular. Right, so whether it's social studies or science topics, you know, it's really been interesting to see them grow outside of that traditional, you know, high school math tutorials with their, you know, Khan Academy origin mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, interestingly enough, I, I know for us, our introduction to Khan Academy was the school that my kids went, they attended before we started homeschooling. Um, that's who introduced me to Khan Academy because the junior high and high school math teachers were using that with their math classes. So they had registered all of their students on con. And so you know how there was that tools where teachers could go in and see, or as a parent, you can go in and see what, you know, your student or child has done. And you could see, oh, they watched this video so many times, they did this. And so they would have an idea of the places where they maybe had holes or were missing things and that they could supplement or they could help them one-on-one on. And uh, they were the ones who actually introduced me to con the first time, which was a great tool for them. It was fantastic, and it still continues to be. So I think that's fantastic. And I know one of the questions that had come through from our patron that as well ties into it too, and, you know, she was asking about, you know, teachers as well for that, being the gatekeepers or or being um, their jobs, you know, the question about their about how the the role really of their job is because when you have so many other resources and classes online and tools and she had mentioned Creative Live and Udemy and mm-hmm. Masterclass and she brought up the suggestion of she said maybe school should become a place to gather and discuss share and collaborate play and debate and she said Seth Godin has suggested such a school learn online before you come. And then let's talk about what you learned and how I as a teacher or you as a teacher can help you understand it better and take it deeper. What are your thoughts? Well, I love, I love that. And her frame, your listeners framing of that is so perfect. And it really falls in line with, you know, this idea of a flipped classroom, which is a popular kind of strategy Mm -hmm. for leveraging digital tools where you are watching a lecture, you are reading an article and that happens you know, outside of a classroom setting so that when you do come in, right, you are working through problems, you're having conversations, you're having that discussion. And that teacher expert, you know, isn't just sharing information, they are facilitating a learning experience. And they might have created that expert video themselves that you watch before class, or they might have curated and found the very best one. And so I think that's one of the ways that, you know, technology really gives us a lot of options for 
kind of organizing what learning looks like now. And there's many, you know, online platforms like the one that you mentioned, the ones that you mentioned. There's ones that are a little more K-12 focused, you know, whether it's setting up a Google Classroom or something set up in Microsoft, you know, teams for discussions that would lead into a face-to-face. And so I love the, you know, hybrid model. I'm always very hesitant to push everything online or everything completely analog, right? So I think when we're using the very best of all of the things, right, we can find a nice balance that's, you know, most effective. Okay. So can I ask, what is the hesitancy? What would be the hesitancy of, of doing that, pushing it all online or analog model? Well, I really think that face-to-face time is important and it can really take that, you know, online experience to the next level when you've had, you know, personal connections with other folks, when you've had a chance to do something that might be more collaborative in a face-to-face, you know, tactile way, it can strengthen online collaboration as well. You know, so when we're thinking about what children will do when they're outside of a traditional K-12 education, when they've finished that part, right, of their, you know, schooling, we know that there's going to be a combination of experiences, both online and offline, that they will have. And so the more we can mirror that and prepare them for all of those things, right, I would hate to think that there's only one or another, you know, box being checked as opposed to giving a variety of experiences mm-hmm. that are both on and offline. Right. The face-to-face, because so much of it really as well is our human nature, our human need for connection and the relationships that that are built and that really build and help our development as well. It's extremely important. So if I am, I know we've been talking a bit about schools as well. If I'm a, I'm a, I'm a parent educating my children at home, if I'm a homeschool parent or an unschooling parent, what we were talking about some of the applications and tools that we could use, what recommendations do you have for parents? with kids at home that home educate and unschool? What are some of your favorite ones that you would recommend? So I often put tool recommendations into two categories. So the uh, consumption and then the creation. And the consumption tools, you know, we've talked about a couple of them, right? Khan Academy is great, right? There's TED Ed, there's Storyline Online, places to go and get video content that can supplement a variety of things that you might do in the classroom. So, or in a homeschool environment where you're talking about a particular concept. So that multimedia connection for consumers, they're reading, they're viewing, Viewing, they're listening, but then also on the creation side, if kids are synthesizing information from a variety of sources and creating something new based on what they've learned, I love um, the Adobe Spark tools. I love Book Creator, which are Chrome friendly and iPad friendly. I've done some work with both of those companies, and they've got really great um, free and you know, free products that you can dive into right away. And those are ones that are student-friendly. Kids can make movies. They could make a website. They can make an ebook. They can make infographics. And just this idea of them making and creating something digital is really powerful. And it doesn't have to be just on computers either. You know, they can snap pictures of a science experiment they're working on and then create a movie that chronicles that entire experience with their own voice narrating over it. So that's just one way that you might have that balance between consumption and creation happen, right, at home supporting children as learners. Okay. Adobe Spark Tools and Book Creator, those are the last two that you had mentioned? 
Yes. So Adobe Spark has a a movie making, a website creation, and a graphic design element to it. So kind of three tools in one. And a book creator is an ebook maker. So kids can record their voice, add video, put text on the page. And, you know, it's really a wonderful way for them to create a portfolio of their learning over a set period of time or to create something that's just totally new, right, based on what they've learned about a topic. Very cool. Very, very cool. So how accessible are these for families? So all of those are tools that are, you know, both consumer facing and student facing in the more traditional K-12 like lens. So anyone could use those tools. Adobe Spark is actually a tool that was really designed for small businesses and bloggers who wanted a little bit more support from marketing and design. And then educators like myself got really excited about it. And so they do have a Spark for Education version that is geared towards K-12, but anyone can sign up for the normal version. I was talking to a, a dad earlier today and he was asking for some, you know, holiday break Chromebook recommendations for his son. And I said, you know, that's one you can just sign up for. You don't even have to do anything special, right, from an educator perspective. And same thing goes with um, Book Creator. Uh, Depending on where you're using it, there's an iPad app you can download and just jump into right away. And then they do have an online platform, but you could set it up as a teacher parent um, as addition to a classroom teacher. Okay. I'm actually going to check those out. Those actually sound (laughs) really good. They sound fantastic. So, I mean, and I also, I hadn't asked this question earlier to you, but it comes up because, I mean, you are, you know, ed tech, you consult with schools and families uh, on technology and how we can best use technology and implement it. What and But at the same time, I think there's also a debate going on because of so much technology and access where some are kind of going the opposite, where they're saying no technology, no screens, we need less, not more. It's not good for kids or their development or their growing brains. You know, what what are your thoughts on this? I am a big believer in, you know, moderation and everything, right? So we, of course, don't want to be too extreme. It, vegetables are great for you, but if you only ate vegetables, right, that would be a problem. <laughs> so, you know, same thing goes here. <laughs> you know, we love, I love the technology, but if it's the only thing you're doing and you're never talking to someone, you're not building anything with Legos, you're not, you know, outside, like that's a problem too. So I think it really comes down to balance. And, you know, as you, and I don't mean to say that by any means, dismissive of the question because I think it's super important, right, to have these conversations mm-hmm. because, you know, I get that asked a lot when, like, how much is too much screen time, right? Well, how much mm-hmm. is too much, you know, independent reading? If your child is reading and not talking to anyone in the family all day long, right, that's a problem just like if they're playing video games and not talking to anyone all day long, right? You know, so uh, we want to make sure that these are quality experiences for kids. And so, yes, you know, there are recommendations from the American Academy of pediatrics, right, that talk about screen time, especially for young, young children and what that looks like for a two-year-old with, you know, joint media engagement and Skyping for a family member. You know, that's probably, you know, what you want that young, young child to use technology for, where for older students, if they are 
you know, doing something that is a high quality experience, right? They're talking, they're going through something, they're sharing something, they're reading or learning something new, they're applying a skill, you know, that, you know, comes into play as well, right? So all of those are things that make it hard to say, you know, here's your number of minutes for today, right? When we are talking about, you know, thoughtful use, it can have a lot of different, um, a lot of different, um, They'll look look different pretty much, you know, with every different child that you're talking to, right, and their particular environment. Yeah, absolutely. No, I didn't feel actually you were dismissing my question because, (laughs) I mean, I I thought because of your background, it's a great question to ask too because I actually have listeners on both sides of the fences. So I have some that say, no, we limit it. Even though our kids are teenagers, there's only like these certain times or these hours or even only these days, maybe a certain hours on the weekends. And others who feel like, well, especially for homeschoolers or unschoolers, my child has, you know, they play a lot of video games. And, you know, maybe we have guidelines around it's always in the living room where the family is. Um, you know, we always are, mm-hmm. you know, we know what you're doing. Um, we It's in conversation. We talk about what you're doing and creating, but they've said it's led to other things like computer programming and software design. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've created clubs and friends who they get together in game and they do that regularly. They've created events around it and all that sort of stuff. So they say, actually, you know, all this technology and time on, the, you know, on their computer on doing video games or whatever else has actually been a great use for them. So, but as I get at what you said too, it's also dependent on the child and how the parent knows their child and what works as well to really being able to identify that too and, and uh, having a good relationship so you know what works for them and how you can support them. Absolutely. And I love those examples that you gave of, you know, you're playing the video game, but maybe now you're designing your own video game, right? You're having Mm -hmm. online interactions. Now you're having these face-to-face interactions. And so that balance there is really key. And I think for all adults, you know, who are working with children in any capacity, um, whether that's their child at home or a teacher in a classroom, right, there's a wonderful opportunity to model best practices with technology use too. So if you're a family member, you know, where you are on your phone on the couch all day long, (laughs) you know, when you're having that Mm -hmm. family time, right? Mm -hmm. What does that modeling look like if you're out, you know, at a TJI Fridays and you're on your phone, right? And when you're at that table, right, what is that going to show in terms of how you're allocating your time to? So it's all part of the equation um, when we think about what home use looks like and when we think about what school use looks like. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We we are modeling. We're, it's one of those things where we say it's screens off and put those things away. <laughs> but then we're seeing that as we're looking at our phone and checking Instagram or sending an email or whatnot kind of thing as well. So it's true. Very, very true. <laughs> what we model is so, so important. Absolutely. And I think that's the other thing as well as even for parents and adults, so many things. I think for me, so much of my work happens on my phone, which I put in my pocket uh, a lot of times. <laughs> and my emails uh, and, and calls and everything like that is right. My computer is in my hand constantly. So it's being very cognizant of being present with my my children when, you know, when it's time to be present with them and to put that away and actually not put it in my back pocket, but put it in my bedroom <laughs> instead uh-huh. where I, I don't pull it out as quickly. So could you tell us a little bit about, um, I know I know you have a list of conferences that you've been speaking at and um, 
what you've created as well. Like there you have, uh, you have a lot happening, a lot going on, especially with classtechtips.com. Could you maybe talk a little bit about um, what you founded with classtechtips.com? Yes. So I started my blog, classtechtips.com in 2012. And I can't believe we're entering, you know, we're here in this new decade of 2020. (laughs) Right. Um, I know I love everything with the decade branding (laughs) in this new year. And so, right. Um, It's very humbling. And so, you know, now um, my blog has evolved where in addition to my blog posts, which I have new blog posts a couple times a week, anywhere from one to three new blogs a week, I also have a podcast that Easy Ed Tech podcast, which I host yes. on my blog and in all the other podcasting places like you. Um, so that's something that I have as a blog post and comes out on my blog every Tuesday. And so that space is where I share lots of favorites, sometimes partnering with different companies, other times um, you know, curating a whole bunch of resources with some action items uh, for educators thinking about bringing different technology tools into their classrooms. And I also share, you know, all all of those things on social. So I'm pretty active on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Class Tech Tips on those platforms. I'm giving a little bit more of a behind the scenes from different spaces I might be working in and then sharing some of the tips from the blog in action in those spaces as well. Okay, that's fantastic. I'm going to include all of those in the show notes as well how to reach you through social, but also your blog and your podcast. As I, I know I was actually looking through and starting to listen to a couple episodes too, <laughs> and they provide some great information. And actually, I, I didn't see the con one, but I'm definitely going to check that one out. So yeah, <laughs> Salman Khan and Khan Academy. That would be a good one. And I know that's actually been a request my kids have had if I can somehow track him down and get him on the podcast <laughs> as well, because they have their own questions for him too. Oh, I love that. Yeah, they're engaged, which is really good, which is the most Mm. important for us as well, for my husband and I. So I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been great talking with you and actually so many tips and tools that I actually, I've never, this is the first time I've been introduced to Google Arts and Culture. So I'm actually excited to to learn more about it and check it out as well as Adobe Spark Tools and Book Creator. There's there quite a few that you mentioned that um, I'm going to learn more about for us as well. Oh, wonderful. So is, um, I will include how to reach you in the show notes too. Is, is there any last advice or tips when it comes to technology and learning that you would like to leave for listeners? Well, one phrase I use all the time is tasks before apps. And it's kind of my mantra or my gut check when it comes to making decisions about bringing technology into learning environments. So the more that we can be strategic and purposeful with leveraging the power of all these different technology tools, you know, the better. Okay. Tasks before apps. Okay. All right. I like that one. And the strategy and purpose. Absolutely. I think in so many things in our life as well, too, that applies. Well, thank you, Monica. I appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And this was just so lovely. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com.